leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. recent late-stage failure of another high-profile Alzheimer's disease drug candidate is a reminder of the challenges of developing drugs for neurological conditions. These challenges are driven by the fact that there are hundreds of different brain cell types and complex circuits and pathways in the brain that make it difficult to identify the right protein to target to treat a given disease. Saravant says its proprietary platform overcomes the limitations of most approaches used today to study human brain cells. We spoke to Brad Margus, CEO of Saravance, about the company's platform technology, how it addresses the challenges drug developers face, and the programs it's advanced to date. Brad, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. We're going to talk about neurological disease, Cerevance, and its platform technology, NetSeq, for identifying novel targets for treating these conditions. Uh, we're having this conversation in the wake of a, another high-profile phase three failure in Alzheimer's disease. Perhaps you can begin by offering some thoughts on the need for new therapies for neurological diseases and whether there's been something fundamentally wrong in the way we've been approaching these conditions. Great. So this is something I think a lot about all the time. Um, I think, you know, everyone agrees, and, and I think the headlines are always talking about how for especially common CNS diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, that, that there's this enormous population, millions of people who have it and, and more that are going to get it. And yet, um, you know, there have not been any successes for those neurodegenerative diseases yet. Nothing in development has made it. It's a 100% failure rate. And I think part of that is because the brain is really complex and difficult to understand. Um, but um, I think another reason is because there, there are now challenges to taking risks. Um, if you're a pharma, big global pharmaceutical company executive, you're probably going to bet on a more validated target that's already been studied by a lot of people over some decades. And um, it, similarly, if you're a venture capitalist who with a limited horizon for your fund, you can't really place bets that may take a long time to prove out. And for these reasons, I think you know, there's a bias toward pursuing already known targets and in some cases even um, talking ourselves into believing that those targets are somehow more validated than some newer targets when if you look really closely, they aren't. And, uh, there, you know, I spend a lot of time also studying why other uh, CNS programs have failed and, 
in some cases it's because it's hard to get a, a compound into the brain. I get that. And sometimes it's hard to get um, translate you know, uh, safety or dosing issues from animals to humans and get that right. But most of the time it's because of efficacy, and that I blame on targets. Well, I know you from the, the world of rare disease. You have two sons with a rare neurological condition that's known as AT or ataxia telangentia. I'm wondering how your experiences with AT may have led to your approach at CeraVance. Well, thanks for mentioning my, my kids' disease. I appreciate it. I, I, uh, well, it makes, me, uh, makes it much more personal for me. So every approach we think about for tackling the brain and getting new insights in the brain, um, I'm maybe a little more skeptical, a little more grumpy sometimes when people oversell things because I, I really need them to work, especially on research directed at my kids' disease. So it's very personal, and um, I'm pretty candid with everyone about that. Sometimes, sometimes I get in trouble for that. But um, I think uh, the, the good news is that there is an enormous amount of progress being made in basic neuroscience. The tricky part is getting um, the research to translate into therapies, and part of that is science and Part of the challenge is just uh, all the other things that have to happen to execute and implement so that you can get to a therapy. And uh, so I, I came at it and I got into life sciences because of my kids' disease, but now I think about common disease as well and, and you know, focusing on the brain. One of the challenges in treating neurological disease is that targeting a protein involved in a disease can be problematic because proteins in different cell types may serve different functions. How big a variety of cells are found in the brain, and how does that add to the challenge for developing neurological therapies? Yeah, so it's huge. So, um, there are at least 500 cell types. Um, after that, you know, you can argue all day on what makes a new cell type, expressing a couple of different markers. Some people would argue it's still another cell type, but um, certainly at least 500 or 600 different cell types in the brain. And then the connections that they make and, and one of the things we've learned at CeraVance is that even the same cell type um, in different areas of the brain, like uh, the glial cells that are part of the immune system in the brain, you know, express very different genes depending on where they are in the brain and what other cells they're next to. So um, that makes it really challenging. And then the, again, the other big challenge has been that until recently it's been difficult to do anything um, to really understand the molecular basis of human brain diseases um, using human tissue, most of the time we've had to rely on animal models, and, and uh, you know, no matter what you say, looking at a mouse brain is a difficult way to study a cognitive uh, disease or a disease that strikes humans in their 70s. Um, it's just not a good system. One of the things you're doing is building a collection of brain tissue. How substantial a collection of tissue have you amassed, and, and how is it being used to address this challenge? So working with about 11 different partners around the world, um, we've met brain banks. We've uh, yeah, now exceeded 5,000 different brain tissue specimens that are all post-mortem tissue samples from donors. And some of those have are healthy controls who died for some other reason. And then a lot of them are uh, donors who had a particular neurological or psychiatric disease. And uh, 
you know, we've learned a lot along the way that uh, quality control isn't the same at every brain bank, and we've had to set up our own systems for um, registering and the markers that are expressed by different parts of the brain so we can uh, really determine if what somebody says they sent us is truly that part of the brain. But the reason we're doing it is uh, because we have a new methodology that lets us um, look really deeply at specific cell types in the brain, and until now that's been difficult. Well, how do other drug developers go about finding targets in the brain, and, and what's unique about your, your platform? How, how is it addressing challenges that might have existed in the previous ways people have approached these problems? So there, there are, uh, so once people figure out that maybe animal studies are going to be limited, the, the current way that most people try to study brain tissue is, uh, has been to do something called laser microdissection, where you use a laser to cut a little piece of the brain. Hopefully it's homogeneous and has one cell type, but what people learned was even doing that, you still got a lot of mixed cells together, and they're intermingled, and they're very hard to study. So the current way people try to do it is one of two things. The first is they make stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells or iPS cells, from someone's blood or skin, Again, healthy controls as well as people with disease. And, and once they have these stem cells made, they then use some other tricks to make those cells turn into a type of neuron that seems like it's relevant to that disease. So um, in the case of Alzheimer's, you might want to try to make it into a neuron that's similar to the kind in the hippocampus, which is very vulnerable in Alzheimer's. The, the tricky part of it is that as a model system, it's still really artificial. Those cells are growing in a lab dish. They're not inside a living brain. All the connectivity and all the um, you know, metabolic activity going on. On top of that, the, uh, when you have stem cells that have been differentiated into a type of neuron, um, although it may start looking like that neuron and may express a few markers, it's really still very embryonic, very early stage. So we would argue it's not that great for studying a disease that Again, doesn't hit people till they're in their 70s or 80s. The other approach that people are now using for studying human brain cells and trying to get a read on specific cell types is something called single cell analysis, or in some cases, single nuclei analysis, where you're just looking at the nucleus of the cell. And with this method, you usually pluck one cell at a time, and then you pull out the RNA from it and you sequence it. And with that approach, it's expensive. And and laborious, but you can get um, the RNA that's expressed or the genes that are turned on in that cell type. Um, the problem we've run into, and we've done both of these approaches, but with single cell analysis, the problem we run into is that it's a wonderful approach for finding new markers for a cell type, but it really only detects the top one or 2,000 genes that are expressed by that cell type. And usually a cell type uh, expresses 10 to 12,000 genes. So at CeraVents, we really wanted to get deeper than that and get the whole inventory of every gene that's expressed by that cell type. And to do that, we had to come up with this different technique, which we call NetSeq. You've been able to garner some interesting insights from the early use of the platform. What have you been able to determine about the different cell types, their function, and, and how age and disease may affect them? Yeah, so the approach we use, NetSeq, 
allows us to, you know, look at a specific cell type at a time. So naturally there are some uh, really cool things that pop out right away. So, you know, the first thing that comes out is we, we looked, we went back and looked at the difference between humans and other animals just to see how much are, is the world missing if they use animals instead of humans. And so, for example, comparing a bunch of different cell types between humans and mice, we found that, sure, lots of genes are expressed by both species. You know, it's not surprising. We're both mammals. But for every cell type we looked at, there were typically several hundred genes at least that were expressed only by mice, not by humans, and several hundred genes that were expressed only by humans and not by mice. So this isn't just one cell type or the most high-level cell types like that are involved in high-level thinking, but even really what we think of as conserved cell types like the Purkinje cells in the cerebellum, the oldest part of the brain, we found some huge differences between humans and, and mice. And the next obvious thing we looked at is uh, just different cell types. So there are some cell types for drug discovery purposes that you really like to find um, differences between. And sometimes it's been really hard. So a good example is in the striatum, which is in the midbrain area that's affected in Parkinson's disease once the dopamine-producing cells die. In the striatum, there are these two types of neurons called medium spiny neurons. They look exactly the same. But one type you really want to uh, change the activity of or activate um, to treat Parkinson's, and the other ones you don't. So we went looking for targets that were expressed only in the one cell type and not the other, and our platform enabled us to do that. And today we have a phase one drug that's actually um, targeting that target that's really selectively expressed. You mentioned aging, and we've now got samples from people who are from 17 years old to 97 years old, so eight decades and we've been able to look across specific cell types at a time to see what changes in gene expression in uh, different parts of the brain as you age. And keep in mind, age is, you know, um, by far the most uh, associated factor with neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So um, we wanted to see the changes. And sure enough, you'll see that some cell types change m much more dramatically with age than others. We've also compared aging in healthy people to aging in some uh, people with neurological diseases. And for example, in Parkinson's disease, we found that people with Parkinson's disease's cell types seem to be, um, in terms of a molecular readout, older by maybe 10 or 15 years than a healthy person the same age. Really interesting stuff. Um, we've looked at, I mentioned the same cell type across different brain regions, like the story I mentioned about the microglia and the glias and the uh, glial cells in the brain. Um, we've looked at even in the same brain structure, like that story I told you about the striatum, some things you can see with human tissue you could never see with mice. So the dorsal, the top part of it in the brain, which plays a big role in, in movement, has very different genes being expressed than the same cell type in the ventral part of the striatum, which is the part of the brain that plays a bigger role in addictive behavior, things like that. So these are things that make sense, and we're now getting really detailed data on that, um, frankly, the rest of the world hasn't been able to see. Um, we obviously look at differences between people who are diseased and healthy. But we've also seen some people, we've also looked at groups where we've seen some genes that are, you know, and I mean several hundred that are turned on in a subset of healthy people and not in everybody else. We don't know what that means yet, but it is really inter interesting, and it could be that what we're seeing are what they call prodromes, like a, a signature that 
is shared by people who will someday get a bad disease. And we could be seeing this before it even becomes symptomatic. Um, there are lots of genes that people have found, at least at some level, some effect size to be associated with neurological diseases like LERC2 or GBA and Parkinson's or APOE and Alzheimer's. And our platform lets us look at how those genes are affected by the germline variants in different cell types. And uh, for companies that are, you know, very proud of themselves because they're using genetically validated targets, uh, they obviously would be very eager to see what happens to those targets in different cell types. So I hope this gives you an idea of some of the, all the different things you can uh, start to look at. And again, in human tissue, a mature human tissue that from people with serious diseases really hasn't been possible until now. And uh, from, from it, we're starting to pick some targets, proteins that we believe if you modulate them, it could be therapeutic and, and starting to do drug discovery against them. Well, how, how does the platform actually work to identify new drug targets? Well, so the two pieces. The first part is how the platform works for to profile cell types. And what we have is a clever way of, of um, tagging and sorting cells so that we only get one cell type. We get a lot of them, and we're able to very deeply uh, sequence the RNA in those cells. Once we have these huge data sets, then we have to um, not only use our data, but then overlay it with a lot of uh, important network and pathway analysis techniques. We use machine learning. We use uh, informatics approaches. Some of them are off the shelf, and some of them are developed in-house. Um, you know, we have neuroanatomists and electrophysiologists who really quickly can test a potential target to see if changing its activity does have the effect we think it does on a circuit. So we're able to pursue not just holy grail, which is disease-modifying treatments that would stop or slow the progression of a disease, but also symptomatic treatments that would at least correct the circuit and maybe give someone a few years or a few years of relief. You know, one of the challenges with identifying novel targets is their so-called drug ability. This is all the more of a challenge in that you're going to have to deliver therapies to cells in the brain. How has that affected your target selection, and are you thinking of developing small molecule drugs, or are these drugs that will be delivered in any special way so that they can cross the blood-brain barrier? So at CeraVents, we have a lot of expertise in small molecule drug discovery chemists and, and uh, people who have actually delivered drugs to the, to the clinic and to the market. But um, our company and our platform is not at all based on one modality like small molecules. If we come upon a target that maybe it's uh, really challenging or not even tractable with a small molecule, but it's absolutely compelling as a target because it's changed significantly in a disease or there's a clear understanding you can get to from our data of a mechanistic hypothesis on why treating it would be valuable. But if that requires a large molecule, like an antibody approach, we would approach somebody, and there's several potential partners out there who have those other modalities and have new abilities to deliver those antibodies, for example, into the CNS, and we would partner with them. Um, we have a target right now that looks like it's very tractable for aptamers. There's a, another target we're looking at that has something to do with, you know, where maybe you could use an antisense oligonucleotide approach, and there are companies out there that are you know, masters at doing that. Um, gene editing, gene therapy, all these fields are making huge strides right now, and investors are very supportive of new modalities. Um, you know, degraders, other kinds of techniques. And um, what they all need 
are some new targets to apply their techniques to. We hope to be one of the companies that can really deliver novel targets that um, kind of refresh the whole CNS space. Again, we've had some disappointments recently, but if you look, most pharmas are working for these major diseases are working on the same targets. You know, we know that uh, amyloid and plaques play a role, but um, we don't know, think it's the whole story. And uh, clearly, some recent trials demonstrate that it may not be the whole story. Your platform has been successful at generating targets. You've got eight programs right now with a lead program in Phase 1B testing to treat cognitive impairment and schizophrenia. You have a, a second program in Phase 1 for Parkinson's disease. How are you prioritizing the indications you're pursuing and, and why those first two conditions? So we, we absolutely want to meet unmet medical need, but beyond that, um, what's we prioritize based on where the, the the science, the data really says has the best chance of making a difference. So if a target is really compelling and it had a smaller population, maybe a smaller uh, net present value, you know, not maybe not perceived as quite as valuable commercially, but we had, it looks like a real shot to change people's lives and, and um, really change the standard of care for a disease, we would be all over it. So... Our priority by far is uh, looking at the target, where is the story the most solid, where is it most testable with downstream you know, validation assays and um, anything else you need downstream, models, and is it tractable with some kind of modality. But um, as long as we can check those boxes, um, all we care about is that it's, it's real and we have no interest in doing, you know, Me Too therapeutics or uh, incremental uh, improvements to some treatment. One of the challenges a, a company with a, a target discovery engine like yours faces is managing the incremental cost of advancing and expanding pipeline. What's the strategy for funding your pipeline as you move from discovery to development? So it's a great question. Um, we will absolutely need more cash. In fact, the more successful you are, the more cash you need. So it works in biotech. And so um, I think we're at a point where, um, you know, Later this year, we may do a Series B financing, but at the same time, we're actively in discussions now as we come out of stealth mode, talking to some potential partners who we would work with in a particular disease or a particular group of cells, and and um, we envision those partnerships also helping us with uh, funding part of our efforts. We have this great tool in hand now that we want to use broadly, and we don't have the expertise or the bandwidth to do it all ourselves. So. Um, we're hoping that this year we'll um, sign up three or four partners and um, you know learn from them, not just take their money, but learn from them and share uh, in in how we our scientists will work together and then ho hopefully share downstream in our successes. Brad Margus, CEO of Cerevance. Brad, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. 
Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.